Hey everybody, John Heilman here and welcome to part two of this very special two-part episode of Hell and High Water with Democratic political strategist, communications savant, Liz Smith, author of the new book, Any Given Tuesday, A Political Love Story. In part one of the podcast, we broke down the latest in the 1-6 committee hearings, including Liz's overall assessment of the committee's effectiveness so far, what these hearings have accomplished, what they still have yet to accomplish, and her expectations for Thursday night's big time hearing taking place in prime time, the last scheduled hearing of the 1-6 committee, although there are those who say there are still more to come. We also heard what it was like for Liz to become tabloid fodder when the New York Post discovered that she was romantically involved with former New York Governor Elliot Spitzer and for her to be fired as soon-to-be New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio's press secretary, communications chief, because of that relationship, an appalling and ridiculous outcome if I may say so myself. If you haven't listened to part one of the podcast yet, you got to hit pause right now on this thing you're listening to and go back and check out part one and then come back here for part two in which Liz Smith and I discuss among many topics, her critical role in Pete Buttigieg's upstart 2020 presidential campaign and her gut-wrenching experience advising another former governor of New York, Andrew Cuomo, as he faced the sexual harassment allegations that eventually forced him to resign last year. And so without further ado, let's get into the second part of our talk with Liz Smith on Hell and High Water. So Liz, we come now to the real turning point in the book now, any given Tuesday, and really in your career on the heels of Donald Trump's election in 2016. Democrats are shell-shocked trying to figure out what to do next, how to combat Trump and Trumpism, how to think about preparing for the 2020 presidential race and trying to get Trump out of office. And you are at this place where you have built up a formidable resume. You've worked for a lot of big name Democrats. You've been involved in some winning races. You've also been involved in some losing races. The 2016 thing had, you know, whatever we want to say about Martin O'Malley, had not gone as planned and not gone as you would have hoped. And if you look at all of those candidates you worked for, many of whom you really respected, but you hadn't really fallen in love with the candidate really to go back to your subtitle, you know, political love story. You hadn't really found the candidate of your dreams yet, the right candidate, the one who would be someone who you respected, someone you liked, and also someone who really had a chance at winning. And then you meet the guy who did, who had all that in one package. Of course, Pete Buttigieg is the person I'm talking about here, kind of the candidate of your dreams. And I want to play, to start this conversation, I want to play a piece of this documentary that came out last year. It's on Amazon Prime. The movie is called Mayor Pete. It's sort of the Buttigieg campaign version of The War Room, which uh, you said before that I know you really love and was really inspirational to you. So we're going to play this little clip here. I think it is from the preparation for the first Democratic debate. And you get to hear Pete Buttigieg talking about the nature of that debate in a way that would appeal to any media or communications consultant. There's a a moment here where it's kind of like, oh, you're like, this is a candidate I could work with. Let's listen to that. So what do we got to cover in this hour? Um, Debate prep. This will be by far the largest audience that you've had during this campaign. Basically, we're talking about approximately 15 sentences that I'll be reading. Exactly. To exactly. That's what matters. It's yeah. not even a debate. It's a media opportunity. Well, right. Thank you. All right. Now we're on the same page. So there you are. You found a candidate who's on your page. There's a candidate who understands. Like, hey, you know what's not a debate? Hey, great. That's fantastic. I don't have to teach you that part, that this isn't a debate. I mean, talk about, you were smitten 
he wrote this Medium post about the letter from Flyover Country. You met him in the context of when he was thinking about running for DNC chair. But eventually, but basically from the start, you were like, this guy is something special. What was that about? It was, you know, you always sort of hear this from political consultants or gurus that there's that moment when you meet the one. And I just, I remember it with him when I first, I talked to him on the phone. I, th- I thought he was impressive, like really smart, really thoughtful, like really mature. He's a guy who's less than a year older than me, which is really depressing. But when I sat down with him, it was the first DNC chair like forum to do media prep with him. And the next day I'm sitting him down with BuzzFeed, Wall Street Journal, New York Times, Politico, Washington Post. He's the mayor of South Bend. You know, he should have been very nervous, right? But we go through question after question after question. And I realized like, wow, this guy is really, really special because he's poised, he's confident, he knows who he is, he knows who his values are, but he's not like a robot, right? He's saying things in a way that I just hadn't heard candidates articulate them before, like a really fresh way of talking about things. And it was at the time, and I've I've talked about this before, like, keep in mind, this is December 2016, January 2017, right? Before Trump is sworn in. And the whole game in the Democratic Party was, well, oh my God, we lost to Trump. Michelle Obama was wrong when she said, when they go low, we go high. And you had people out there like Eric Holder saying, when they go low, we kick them in the teeth. And everyone is just like yelling and screaming and hair on fire on cable news. And I'm just not one of those people who who thinks that Democrats to win need to emulate Republicans. And especially if we find Donald Trump so morally repugnant, why then would we try to emulate him? And Pete was like complete counter-programming to it, you know? It would be like going from like a death metal station to NPR, you know? It was so refreshing. And just listening to him, I just had this like crazy idea that was went contrary to the conventional wisdom that we didn't need to be like Trump. We needed to offer the opposite of Trump. We needed to offer the antidote to Trump, right? We didn't need to compete in the volume of our voices, in the vulgarity of the language we used. Maybe what we needed was someone who was like completely opposite. And Pete yeah. really was complete completely opposite in every way. And like the way he spoke was, you know, sort of hypnotic. He's deep voice, comforting, did not demonize Republicans. And, you know, when other Democrats were putting all Republicans who voted for Trump, not even Republicans, anyone who voted for Trump in this basket of deplorables, Pete was very much like your vote in the 2016 election doesn't define you. And if you did that, if you voted for Trump, I don't care. I want you on my side. And it was very much about not talking down to people and not sort of engaging in this escalating partisan warfare with Donald Trump, which I only think turns people off more. 
everybody wrote a million stories about Liz Smith in 2020 about your about the brilliance or at least the sagacity of your savvy of your kind of being like the guy's the mayor of South Bend. He's special. He's interesting. He's unique. He, you know, he's openly gay. I'm going to put him in front of anybody. Ubiquity is going to be the thing. We're not going to say no to anybody. We're no opportunity too small, no station too tiny, no rating market share too minimal. I'm just like, if somebody wants to talk to Mayor Pete, I'm going to put Mayor Pete in front of him. Can't win over the country for one person at a time, but he can win over the media one, one at a time. John McCain tried that for a while with the Straight Talk Express. But Trump is the ultimate example of that. Right. Back in, 20, in 2015, when he would be like, you know, I'll go anywhere, talk to anybody, I'll phone in, I'll like, you know, whatever. Trump was always the ubiquity. He understood in this media environment that ubiquity is powerful. If you're not going to embrace ubiquity, it's too easy to get lost in all the in all the noise and all the fragmentation of the media. So I wonder whether how when you were doing this with Pete, whether you were thinking he's really different from Donald Trump, but like that lesson still applies to everybody. You got to be out there and you got to be available. You can't be Hillary Clinton refusing to talk to Howard Stern because that's not an interview that I do, you know, which is, of course, the famous 2016 story. It's like, wow, we really probably should talk to Howard Stern at the end of the campaign. Yeah, <laughs> man, he Howard Stern. How dare you? That's one of my white whales. I tried so hard to get I Pete know. on that show. I know. So did the Trump lesson kind of inform your thinking about Pete? Yes, it, it absolutely did. And I talk about that in my book. Because, I mean, there are a few things, which is that we all know that the media is so siloed now and that people sort of just seek out media outlets that reinforce their own opinions, reinforce their own worldviews. And so you've really got to go everywhere if you want to to reach people, right? Most MSNBC viewers don't watch Fox News. Most Fox News viewers don't watch MSNBC. Most people in America don't watch cable news at all. So you've got to figure out, I, I, I called it just sort of like a nice like tapestry of media to do. And another thing I would say about Trump is that the more media you do, the less that one gaffe here or there matters, right? Because if you're always feeding the beast, it's always churning. There's always something new coming in the news cycle. So, you know, one gaffe of yours doesn't have a ton of time to marinate. Right. Right. Um, because he could say something horrific one day, something even more horrific the next day, and then even more horrific the third day. And by that time, it's all just meshed together and no one can even remember any of it. And I'm not saying this is a great thing. It's just the reality of how people consume news and the nature, I think, of the news media that, you know, you're always looking for the news story. And so right. none of the negatives can really stick. It was the opposite, though, with Pete. Whereas Trump, you know, Trump had basically 100% name ID going into this. Sure. Um, right. He was someone who had his own feral, brilliance, TV strategy, whatever it was. But with Pete, we had no money. We had no name ID. We didn't have some like 2 million person right. email list. Yep. People like Kamala Harris, right? When she announced she had 20,000 people show up in Oakland, California. When Pete announced his presidential exploratory committee, it was like Pete... Chastin, Mike Smool, who is the campaign manager, yep. me and a monkey with a symbol, you know, <laughs> that was basically the announcement. And thank God we got pressed to show up for it. 
Well, the press but, will always show up for a monkey with the symbol. Right? Exactly. Like, exactly. Now, you guys are like, hey, there's going to be a monkey. I'm like, all right, I'm showing up. Like, I, I, I wouldn't miss that for, for a million dollars. So, but we had none of the traditional things that you had, were supposed to have. And we're in a 20-something person field. Right. So how do you break through right. in a 20-something person field with no money, no name ID, no email list, anything like that? I mean, I think his email list was like, Less than twenty thousand people. It's a pretty small. It's a small. South Bend, Indiana is a pretty small I mean, place. And yeah, you and you broke through because again, he had certain qualities that were very compelling, and and you put him everywhere. And then he had you know a couple big moments in in town halls and right. And, but, so so that was what we did though. It was yeah. I just started, you know, saying yes to everything, and <laughs> because I again like I had watched him and I had seen him for a long time and I remember I think I introduced you to him at some point and Austin Texas yeah in Austin in the lobby of that like historic the, hotel the Driscoll Hotel yes yeah. exactly and he's someone where I could see if you just met him offhand you'd be like mm, doesn't really do it for me not that impressive like whatever but I knew that there was a hypnotizing quality to him that would catch on with people. And so well, we just started doing this and it just started to snowball, right? Cause we would start doing podcasts like yep. we, and we, and we would start building up TV hits, you know, we're not getting the marquee hits early on, yeah. but we had built up enough of a sort of interesting, like buzz chatter that by the time he got to the CNN town hall, I think on March 20. 2019 and he just crushed it he skipped eight steps that you traditionally have to take of you know running for president and like within 10 days a poll came out showing him polling third in Iowa which I have never seen before in my life and I probably will never see again in my life well, I would say, look, I mean, again, this is one of these things where you and I kind of like in different ways live this. I will say that when I met him, we met, it was the fall of 2018. We were down there for the Tribune Festival and we met in that lobby. And I remember thinking that he was an impressive guy and I thought we had a really nice conversation and, and we all had a lovely time in the lobby. And I I'm probably, I remember thinking and I probably saying to you at some point, you know, openly gay military veteran who's a mayor of a red st- in a city in a red state. That guy's going to get a moment at some point. They're going to get a moment. They're going to have a moment. But press going to there's going to come a time in this campaign cycle where the press is going to give a look to that guy. And if he if he meets that moment, he could get a hell of a ride. So you kind of knew that was going to happen, right? You knew that those things, that combination. I mean, put aside whatever you think of him as a performer and and what he always thought his policies, whatever. In the Democratic Party of 2020 and the 2020 cycle, sure. that combination of things, a red state mayor, the small town thing actually kind of helped with novelty and totally military veteran, openly gay that you were going to get at some point, someone's going to open the door and say, let's go, what's going to give him a step ladder and say, get up on the pedestal. Go ahead. You're going to have your time up there. Right. And you just had to kind of be ready for that. It seemed to me like, not that that's a small thing, but knowing that that's coming, how do we get ready for it? And when we get our moment, really grab it. Right. And, and one thing I, I will say as a compliment to you, John is you reach out to have him on the circus like weeks before the CNN town hall. And you were one of the people early on to sort of see that this guy could have it. And I got to tell you, most of the media was not that way. And mm-hmm. most of the you know political consultants I'd worked with or knew thought I was crazy. They're like, you know, when I was going to work for them, they're like, who? You're working for the mayor of Indianapolis? Um <laughs> 
did you lose a bet? Like, are you punking us? And it's like, no, no, I am. And I can, I can see him breaking through. But what we began to see with the, starting with the CNN town hall was that he had sort of a command of himself and a confidence in himself that you really need to succeed as a presidential candidate. We are going to take a quick break. We'll be right back with more of Liz Smith on Hell and High Water. Welcome back to Hell and High Water. I want to say the name of the book again, Any Given Tuesday, A Political Love Story by Liz Smith. For anybody who either loves or hates Pete Buttigieg, and there are some people who hate Pete Buttigieg. Uh, yeah, they do. So if you want to yeah. hate read it, if you want to hate read it, there's like lots to hate read in here. But if you love him, you're going to get all of the whole Pete story. Well, I'm going to play one piece of sound that gets to two important questions about Pete and about, that go to what happened in the campaign and to his future. Okay. So this is again from Mayor Pete. I know you know this sound because you've heard it before. You've seen the movie probably a bunch of times. This is a, a scene of debate prep, getting ready for the NBC news debate in November of 2019. Uh, and you guys are talking about this controversy that enveloped the campaign at one point, which was there was an officer-involved shooting that had a racial component to it in South Bend. Yeah. Pete was pulled off the campaign trail, had to go deal with it. And now the question was, it was going to come up in the debate. And the question was, how are you going to answer it when someone attacks you on it? Because someone was going to attack him on it or at least raise it. You guys thought it would probably be Senator Harris, but it could be somebody else. And then we'll talk about the big questions that it raises that I want to know the answers to. I got a phone call a few days ago that no mayor ever wants to get. And even as the details are investigated, we already know that part of why this has unleashed such anguish is that this takes place in the shadow of a country's worth of abuses and systemic racial injustice. We need to be home. That's why I am committed to building a country in which a white person and a black person feel the exact same thing when they encounter a police officer. Okay, we can cut it now. So we haven't gotten it right. Something just a little bit stronger, it sounded a little bit wishy-washy on that one. He sounded a bit defensive. And I think the emotive piece, I think, in that answer was missing. Totally. It was very clinical. Yeah. He needs to show more. And honestly, that's the feedback I would give him here. It's just he's got to, he's running for president. And, he's, and when he goes up there, he's got to show more life, more conviction. Because he's coming across like the fucking Tin Man up there. I don't think there's ever been a quote that's more Liz Smith than he's coming across like the fucking Tin Man up there. So here's my here's my here are my questions. Now, everybody, now, Liz, don't spend any time saying you, of course, love people to judge because everybody knows you love people to judge. You don't oh, have to say I, love, I really I, love. That's not even a doubt. I, I'm not going to okay, waste any good, time. Yeah. Good, good, good. Okay, so here are the questions that come out of that. Right, the first question is this goes to this thing we were talking before about with Martin and and about and Trump and others about authenticity, but also about like emotion and and connecting with people. Right, you know, you had that was in November. When we get to February, if, if you're watching the movie, there's another debate prep scene in which he's supposed to be answering a question that has to do with gay rights. And again, you're, you're saying to him, you know, you need to feel this. It sounds like you're reading a fucking shopping list. So you're dealing with this, this issue throughout, which is that a guy who you think is great, you think he's the one, you think he's fantastic. He keeps having the same problem, which is like, you're seeing he's coming across like the Tin Man or like he's reading a shopping list on issues of profound social emotional importance, like where race, shoot, crime, gay rights are involved, right? So I'm curious about whether you think by the end he'd learned that, like how to be, to do the performative part of politics. You know, at some point, 
People want to see you emote. You are right. You can't seem like you're just reading a shopping list. You can't come across like the Tin Man and win the nomination and then the presidency. Do you think he learned that? Because I think it matters an awful lot if he's going to run for president again. I think we both know he is. Well, I don't know if he is. But, well, we both um, suspect he is. Let's 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 say most of America thinks Pete Buttigieg might run for president again, right? That's I not. Think not he would, I think he would be fantastic in any role he wants to serve in in public <laughs> service. Oh, what a great what a great line that was. Okay, let's get back to the Tin Man. <laughs> so there's a thing about Pete where I know he feels very strongly about things, but he does not like to be performatively emotive and. I don't mean to play psychologist here, but this is someone who spent 30 plus years of his life in the closet, including, you know, his time in the Navy, in Navy Intel and under Don't Ask, Don't Tell, where you sort of have to hide a part of who you are and a part of yourself. And it didn't mean that he didn't feel the things he felt. It's just that he... Could co- he compartmentalized things and always sort of had walls up inside him. And in the debates, they ultimately did come down. And he was one of the best debaters on this stage. But he was someone who is not... It's sort of the... I'm trying to think how to describe it. He almost felt like being too emotive. It's almost too powerful for him because there's so much emotion in him mm-hmm. uh, because of his life experiences. But he hates performative emotion, you know? And we all know that there are those Democrats who go out there or, and Republicans and they do this performative emotion. And he never wanted to be that way. And our dynamic on the campaign was obviously very yin-yang. Yeah. And... A lot of candidates probably wouldn't have been thrilled at, if I had said things to them the way I s- said them to him. Mm-hmm. But he had sort of the maturity, the EQ, the smarts to understand that I understood him and where he was coming from. And I understood yeah. that there was another gear in him that could come out and that. He just needed to let go a little bit. And he did let go. And right. he had some great moments in these debates. And, I, and I, I think he was a formidable debater. Look, I think it's reasonable to assume someone as young as him, who did as well, as, even though he fell short, who did as well as he did in the Democratic primary, that that guy's got a big, bright political future. I mean, you know, it'd be way more surprising if he didn't run for president again than if he did. And I assume if he does, he'll have Liz Smith in his corner given some of the politicians of less stature who you've stuck with, which we'll get to in a moment at various oh times God. because of loyalty. But that'll be like our last topic of the day. But there were a lot of people who had doubt about the, the political people who were like, he's going to have a problem connecting with black voters. And I said that all along. I'm like some combination of how he comes across of the fact that the historic homophobia in the black community, he's going to have a hard time, especially with Biden having the strength that he has and, and two African-American candidates in the race. And you can't win the Democratic nomination without winning black votes. You just can't. It's not possible. It's like the fundamental thing I try to teach everybody every cycle when I go, guys, don't talk to me about candidates who can't get black votes. You can't be the Democratic nominee without getting the majority, at least a bare majority of black votes. And people would say, oh, no, but so-and-so. I'm like, no, stop, stop, stop. Very talented. And I was, again, you thought, I thought very highly of Pete, but I thought that would be a problem even before the police shooting thing happened. And then you yeah. have another issue. So I guess my question to you is not... We, we don't have to analyze it. It was a problem for him. 
how does he solve that problem going forward if he wants to have a political, a national political future? What is it that cracks the code for him? And I and just, well, being around isn't really the answer. It's like, if I had been running Bernie Sanders' campaign after 2016, I would have said, we're going to spend the next three years doing stuff to appeal to black voters because you're going to need him in 2020. And they didn't. I, you know, if I had fire advisor Pete Buttigieg right now, I'd be like, hey, if you're going to run for president someday in the future, we got to solve this problem. I don't know that I have the answer to it, but I know I'd be working on it. So... Liz Smith, I'm sure you know the answer because you know everything. So I, so I'm loath to talk about Pete's future because I think people will read too much into it. But let me tell you my thoughts on you know, sort of give you like my post mortem, and you can read into it what you will. One thing we've seen in election after election, whether it's the presidential election or you know some of these Democratic primaries is like for House, Senate, et cetera, is that black voters are very pragmatic voters. You know, they're not going for the socialists. They are not going for, you know, the people making the biggest promises that probably can't be delivered. And with good reason, right? The black community, if if black voters have been sold a bill of goods how many times by slick politicians saying, I'll fix this, I'll fix this, I will do this, I will do that for you. And Joe Biden was a candidate who black voters knew because he was someone who was at Barack Obama's side, the first black president's side for eight years, had his back every step of the way. And was it really... A, as much of a partner with the president as you've seen a vice president be in a long time. I mean, I guess you could say that with Cheney and Bush, but, and so when I look back on 2020, what was really smart of the Biden campaign was to understand that they had a firewall in South Carolina and our campaign didn't fully understand this. I would also say Sanders, Warren, Klobuchar, et cetera, didn't understand this, that Biden was okay with, you know, coming in fourth in Iowa, I don't know, fourth in New Hampshire. I don't don't know if they were okay with it. I don't know if they were okay with it so much as they thought they might be able to survive it. (laughs) But, But you know what's crazy is that no one made any inroads with black voters. No. Um... No one right. made any, and, and Biden's numbers were just rock solid there. So, um, and so I think there's a bit of an unfair narrative around Pete on that issue because no one else really made inroads there. And some of it was perpetuated by the fact, you know, he's a mayor and he has to deal with a white police officer right. shooting and killing a black member of his city. But with Pete, he is a he is someone who is really genuine, who really mm. cares about issues and who really likes to listen to people. And he has made, I think, really good faith efforts on the Hill and in communities across the country to make sure he's talking about when we're talking about infrastructure, right, that we are doing it in a way that ensures yep. equity. And I know that because I I've talked with, you know, Adriano Espayat, who represents Upper Manhattan, who I'd worked for before, Richie Torres, who represents the Bronx, and how Pete is working to make sure that the infrastructure bill helps communities that are underserved or divided because of past inequities. Maybe that's not the answer you wanted, but I well, I, think I that, agree I think, with you a thousand percent. There was no one who made inroads with black voters. They all had various problems. 
uh, with that. And, and you could say that was also true about Cory Booker and Kamala Harris, both of whom happen to be happen to be African American. So I think you would agree with me, though, right? That in the end, that if Pete's going to become the Democratic nominee someday and become president of the United States. There are a bunch of things that Pete demonstrated he can already do. We know he can do them, right? What we learned in the campaign is that Pete is able to raise money. There's a certain set of voters who are in his sweet spot that he can connect with, and he, and he proved that in various ways. This is the unproven thing. Can Pete Buttigieg get black votes or not? It seems to me that's the most important unproven thing we just don't know the answer to yet, right? It, it, it is. And let me just also bring up another example that I think illustrates the difficulty of a newcomer really winning over the black vote. Do you remember in 2008, the Hillary-Obama primary, Mm -hmm. how Hillary was dominating with the black vote for such a long time? And you would think, if you just think, if you're a casual observer, you'd think, okay, well, Barack Obama would be cleaning up with a black vote. No, he had to go out and earn that support and show that you're more than just a, a politician who's saying the same things everyone else does. And because the black community is very pragmatic, they've been told right. a lot of bullshit over the years. They're right yeah. to be skeptical. And even Barack Obama had to go out and prove that. And we always knew it would be a challenge from the get-go. And, uh, you know, we'll see how it goes. It's a slightly different thing, right? Because in Obama's case, what he was proving to black voters as a black candidate was that he could win. You know, that that a lot of these very pragmatic black voters who were like, I don't care about inspiration. I really care about making sure that whoever we nominate for president is someone who could actually win the White House. It matters a lot to us. Very pragmatic. The most pragmatic group of, of voters in the entire electorate, black voters. And for them, it's like Obama's proving that he can appeal to white voters. Slightly different thing for Pete and the kind of challenges he has. But I take your point, and we could go on about this all day, but we got to take a quick break, sell some soap flakes, and on the other side, we'll move on to a totally different conversation when we come back after these messages with a little more of Liz Smith here on Hell and I Water. Welcome back to Hell and I Water with Liz Smith. And Liz, we are now going to move on to the last part of this epic two-part podcast and the final big unaddressed topic and character in your new book. We'll say the name again, Any Given Tuesday, A Political Love Story. But this part of the book is not a political love story, although it is obviously important enough to you that you wrote about it in the prologue of the book, and then you came back to it and wrote about it in depth later in the book, and that is Mr. Andrew Cuomo, the governor of New York. So I want to play to begin here. This is Andrew Cuomo taking on for the first time on camera. He addressed the camera and then took questions from reporters March 3rd, 2021, when he first got started getting hit with these sexual harassment allegations. And I will say that this is basically two days after Liz Smith kind of came into the kitchen cabinet on March 1st, one year after PETA dropped out of the presidential race. Here comes Liz Smith, who had a little bit of a relationship with Cuomo, a professional relationship with Cuomo, going back to the 2018 campaign, is now drawn into the middle of the scandal and ends up doing the prep for this press conference and the speech that he's about to give. So I want to hear what he had to say here, and then we'll talk about Andrew Cuomo a little bit on the other side. I want New Yorkers to hear from me directly on this. First... I fully support a woman's right to come forward. 
And I think it should be encouraged in every way. I now understand that I acted in a way that made people feel uncomfortable. I never touched anyone inappropriately. I never knew at the time I was making anyone feel uncomfortable. And I certainly never, ever meant to offend anyone or hurt anyone or cause anyone any pain. Okay, so like the thing about I never touched anyone inappropriately, he would say that throughout. That, that's just like in your judgment as you sit here today, that's just a fucking lie, right? He just he lied to he lied on camera repeatedly. He lied to all of you. I mean, if I take the summation of what I read in the book, I don't think I'm mischaracterizing. Your sense was like he looked you all in the eye and told you things that were just false. Um. So. Um. I would say this. I do. I think that he acted inappropriately over time with women. Yes. Do I think that he was not honest with the people advising him? Yes. Do I think he made women feel unsafe or uncomfortable? Yes. Um, And it was a tough situation to go through because he was someone I loved. I trusted. I viewed as a mentor, as a father figure. You know, the side story to all this is my father's dying as... I'm advising uh, Governor Cuomo. And so it it just took on sort of more import for me. But um, yeah, he, he didn't tell the truth to, to any of us around us. And frankly, you know what? I don't know that I will ever know the full truth about what happened in these situations. So it's like, you know, the sense, your sense of betrayal comes through in the book very clearly. I mean, you're, you know, again, I know you're being careful because you don't want to say that you know that he touched somebody inappropriately or whatever, but part of what comes through very clearly is that he's basically saying to you over and over again, there will be no more stories. Then there's another story like two weeks later. You know, it's like there's there's that repetitive sense of like every promise he's making to us internally. Why should we stick with you? He tells you a story that falls apart like in your hands practically, right? You know, you had never had any indication that there was a problem in this area for you say that in the book. I guess I, and I obviously believe you. I just, I guess part of my question is about, and that's why you went, you took this assignment on. But as the months go by, I just said, you know, I made the points, right? He's saying things to you that are being proven. They're being knocked down. Every promise he makes, everything he says, and yet you stick with him for months and months and months, you know, really to the end, right? Just explain that to people. Like, what is it that made you decide as the evidence mounted, and again, we may all never know the truth, but when a pattern emerges of this kind, and there's an attorney general's investigation, and there are so many women with so many similar stories, I'm not aware there's smoke, there's fire always guy, but I don't know very many people who looking at that attorney general's report that eventually got done and hearing all these accounts in the press who are like, ah, yeah, this is all made up. That's not really where people are at. So what, just tell me like how they, why you decided to stick with that guy, not popular with a lot of women. That's the decision to stick with him. So explain it. Um, so he was someone in my life I cared a lot about. I had worked for him, consulted for him briefly. You know, I, I didn't have a lot of face-to-face time with him in 2018. But he would call me from time to time during the presidential race just to cheer me on, say, 
you know, I'm so proud of you. And he was the first person to, to raise the idea with me of writing a book, which is, I don't know, sort of tragic, sick, twisted, right? Now. Ironic, poetic. Ironic, something. yeah. Um, Dark and, poetry. Yeah, and I remember I was at a, I was sitting in the lobby of a Manchester hotel when he said, Liz, you need to take notes because you are going <laughs> to write a book. But more seriously, look, he is someone I, as I said before, I loved, I trusted, uh, saw as a mentor. And when the first allegation came out, he vehemently denied it. And I believed him. And then it's just... It, it, it sort of speaks to like sort of the quicksand that can happen in these situations. And I don't mean to like mix metaphors, but there's a quicksand and a, and a, a fog of war, right? Because then shortly after, you know, a week later, another allegation comes out. A week later, another allegation comes out. And each time he vehemently denies them. And... You want to be there for someone who you think you love, you think you care for, you think they're right. And so I was there, but a lot of why I was there and why I got there in the first place goes back to what we talked about earlier, John. Um, My situation with Elliot and the tabloids, you know, it was really, really difficult for me. I had good personal friends political friends who made, I suddenly became pers- persona non grata as soon as okay. the New York Post story came out. And it was devastating. It was isolating. It, it, you know, I, I bear the battle scars of it to this day. And so I think in my mind, sometimes there's a thought, wow, these awful things happened to you that were unfair. And so for anyone who is going through a crisis, anyone you care about, that you should be with them and you should believe that they're acting in good faith. They're telling you the truth. And I am politics is full of people who just cut and run, who are there for you. They're there for Cuomo when he is on the front page of the Washington Post, New York Times, you know, global superstar. But the second there's a whiff of scandal, they're gone. And you and I know this about politics. It's just, it's a story as old as time. And I never, ever wanted to be that person. And I've made it a thing in my life whenever I've seen even people I don't know. I I remember when I was in Uganda seeing a woman, I I checked Twitter, seeing a woman, a Republican woman I didn't know, being accused of, you know, smeared with some sort of sex scandal thing and DMing her because I just want, I know how lonely I felt and I never want anyone to feel as alone as I felt in my moment. So I had a feeling of like, I don't know, moral obligation, loyalty to be there. Um, But over time, you know, you, you talked about it before, you know, 
not being told the truth over and over again, I realized that there's a difference between um, earned loyalty and blind loyalty. Right. And that one should not conflate loyalty with integrity. And think of loyalty as the ultimate virtue. I actually think that loyalty can blind you. And the idea that loyalty takes over everything else. And so that's why I stuck with him. Um, I wanted to believe in him in part because I needed to believe in him. If I didn't believe in him, then what did that mean? That everything I'd been doing for him, like during the last couple of weeks, but all those yeah. years that it had all been a lie. Um, and it was a real reckoning I had to have with myself and I could sort of like compartmentalize it until the AG report came out and, you know, he had said, oh, there's going to be gang. There's going to be nothing more in this. And there's an allegation that he had been inappropriate with a state trooper. And it's like, man, like a state trooper's tasked with protecting your life, you know, throwing their body like, in front of the bullet that's coming. Exactly. You, right? Exactly. And, yeah. and the fact that he wouldn't even be honest about that beforehand. And that's when I was out, I was done. And maybe a, you could say that this says a lot about me about a, as a person that it took me that long, but I was trying to be good. I was trying to be loyal. And, right. but when, when that dropped, I was done. And with a lot yeah. of other people, I was done and I realized that, you know, my loyalty had been taken advantage of. My reputation had been taken advantage of. And it was, it was personally devastating. You talk about loneliness. I, loneliness and loyalty are both wrapped up in this. And I definitely, I mean, listening to you talk about it, I understand it in a way. It's like, you know, people go through these things often, whether rightly or wrongly. You know, sometimes it's right. Sometimes it turns out like they should be abandoned. Other people go through it, like in your case with in the Elliot with the Elliot scandal. It wasn't really a scandal. It there was nothing. There was, right. there was no sex scandal involved. You didn't do anything wrong. Right. You didn't do anything wrong. Not a single thing, right? And yet you lost friends over it, or people abandoned you, right? That's painful. I know it's painful, and I, I can tell. I can see it still stings, and I can imagine how it would shape your thinking, or at least what you're feeling, if not your thinking about you know being in a situation like this. You know, you start to conflate people who have abandoned you wrongly with like, I don't want to be the one who abandons him. You know, he's looking me in the eye and he's telling me this, so I'm going to believe him. You know, another thing you said before about de Blasio though ties in here that I think is worth just saying is that you write in the book about how the thing that bothered you was that the nursing home scandal was kind of bothering you. There was like some part of your gut was poking at you. I mean, I'm not going to turn a blind eye or whatever, la 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 to the me too stuff. But like something else was poking at you that was basically like your gut was telling you the same way your gut told you not to go, that de Blasio wasn't a good guy from your point of view and not someone who you respected. Your gut was poking at you about Cuomo just in a slightly different way. Somewhere in your, in your instinctive lizard brain, you know, you were trying to tell yourself to like listen to yourself, you know, that this was fucked up because people who lie about like politicians who are lying and covering up and all that shit in one area, they're usually doing it everywhere. It's just not I, like, it's not, you know? I think it's people who li like, just people. I am so, by the way, I'm like the worst liar in life. I could never play poker because I'd be like, ah, like my face would be everywhere. But yes, I do agree. And 
That's actually very perceptive of you to notice that and probably why you host this podcast is that I did have alarm bells going off in the back of my head with both de Blasio and Andrew in different ways. And, you know, I didn't listen to them. And that's sort of why I wanted to, like, put this stuff in this book because, you know, everyone, like, let's be honest. John, when people write these books, they're always the hero in the room, right? They're always the smartest person. They're always the most virtuous person. They're always this. And as successful as I've been, I have made some big mistakes. I want people to know, and maybe I want myself to know, that when you hear those alarm bells going off, you should probably listen to them. And there's a reason why they are. And just as I trusted my gut with Pete and went with Pete, I should have trusted my gut on other things. So there's, there's one more aspect of this thing, this Cuomo thing that I want to ask you about, which kind of actually extends out from Cuomo and kind of touches on a number of the other candidates who you have been associated with, who you've worked for, who you've been involved with, and that you write about in the book, the subtitle of the book, Political Love Story. You said your first political love with John Edwards. And then, you know, there's the Elliot thing. And what everyone else thinks about Elliot, you know, some complications in this area. You know, Andrew. And I, and I, I, w- I hadn't really thought about, you know, the thread between them. And then I saw this interview that you did with Sean McCreesh over at New York Magazine, where Sean references one of my favorite quotes in the book, where you talk about the fact that Bill de Blasio had been courting Elliot Spitzer to help with his campaign in 2013, and then turned around and fired you when your relationship with Spitzer became public. And this is what you wrote. He said, I can see why de Blasio was pissed. Both of us had tried to get in bed with Elliot, but only one of us had been successful. Now that's a sassy <laughs> comment. And also not like a not a kind of comment that a lot of young women make these days. Very kind of like a little bit like pushing a little envelope there. And this is what Sean McCreesh wrote after citing that quote from the book in New York magazine. This is what he says about you. She's no school marm. Post me too. Workplace entanglements are verboten, but she has only so much patience for that. Quote, my parents met at the workplace. When my dad was in a position of power over my mom, I dated my college professor. I dated a candidate I consulted for. In my case, I didn't feel like there were any power dynamics, but I fully understand that other circumstances might be different. So here's my question. Thinking about all these people, including in the, in the moment with Cuomo, if, as you step back and reflect on it, do you think there's any chance that you have kind of a blind spot for Me Too stuff? Do you think if you reflected on it and thought, maybe I don't have that gene, that, that the right pair of glasses to see that stuff? Well, I don't think Elliot, that was not Me Too stuff. Um, no, no, I, I understand. But they're, they're all about gender dynamics. And there are things that have made women feel kind of have icked out by all three of those candidates. And again, yeah, yeah, I'm not yeah. trying to- I, I guess what I would say is for as hardened as I am, there is still like an idealist in me. And that mm. wants to see the best in people and see the best in their motives. And, you know, people wouldn't necessarily think of me that way. It's not that I have a blind spot for Me Too. I mean, I, I understand this. And and Me Too is an important, long, overdue conversation. Right. But I understand that life is complex and that sometimes the debates we have over issues like Me Too aren't complex. And I would chalk it up mostly to me... I don't know. Just wanting, to believe, wanting to believe wanting in the people to believe. you want to believe in. Yeah. Yeah. 
Uh, look, I, I, I got to say, in this area, the, one of the great virtues of the book is that in so many places where there's a temptation where you could easily have thundered away in a self-righteous, obnoxious kind of Monday morning quarterback, 2020 hindsight vision, you just resist it all along. You're kind of like living in the mess of the moment. And, and that's the truth is that life is really messy. And you, you kind of embrace that. You're like writing about it. And it's very kind of like, you're, you're very, you're critical of yourself. Ambivalences and ambiguities of situations that actually are the gray area that is most of the way we live in, in any professional or personal situation is all in the book. It's a very not like, I'm the hero and I knew best kind of book, which I, again, congratulate a lot of reasons why I want to congratulate you on the book, but that's one of them. I, I can tell that you put a lot of time into making sure that, that was the case, that you didn't want to come across that way. Yeah. And because it wouldn't be credible and it wouldn't be honest because I have conflicted feelings about all of this stuff as, you know, any real human being should. I'm not a politician. I'm not running for president. I don't need to write something where, you know, I... I don't know, fabricate some amazing life story for me and whatever it is. But it was important to me to tell the story, bring people in the room, like what it's actually like and the complex, all the complex dynamics you have to deal with, like the moral yeah. decisions, the professional decisions, the sl sort of sliding doors moments, because there are moments I could have walked out and been fine and wash my hands of things, but these are the things that people who want to get into politics should know about. And I want them to read about in this book so that they understand that you're going to be faced with a lot of tough decisions, just yeah. not just in politics, but in life. All right. So here's my lightning round. Ready? I just yeah. want, I really want these answers to be quick, but you don't have to be sentences. They can be okay. yes or no. Joe Biden running again in 2024. Yes or no? Yes. Really? You're certain? Yes. Okay, that answers that question. Donald Trump running again in 2024, yes or no? Yes. Yes. If Joe Biden and Donald Trump both run, you assume that means you think they're going to be the, the nominees of their respective parties. So we'll have a replay in your mind what you're imagining in 2024 is Joe Biden versus Donald Trump yes. for all the marbles, including the future of our democracy. Isn't this a lightning round? Why are you filibustering? Just go. Just go. Let's go. What's the book in your life that's meant the most to you? Um... Till We Have Faces by C.S. Lewis. Ooh, good book. What's the political book that's meant the most to you in your lifetime? Either All Too Human by George Stephanopoulos or What It Takes by Richard Ben Kramer. Those are all very good answers. And, and with that, I just want to say that the political book that's meant the most to me in the last... Is Any Given Tuesday? In the last 96 hours, at least, is Any Given Tuesday, a political love story by the one, the only Liz Smith. And I can't believe you didn't say Game Change. That's so mean of you. Liz, it was great to see you. I kept you for way too long, but we're a two-parter, so it's like it'd be like a lot of Liz Smith on this podcast. Everybody go by the book. She's the best, even though the Cincinnati Bengals are not. Oh, really? Really? They went to the Super Bowl. They went to the Super Bowl. We'll fight about this next time. Hell and High Water is a podcast from The Recount. Thanks again to Liz Smith for being with us. And remember to pick up Liz's new book, Any Given Tuesday, A Political Love Story. If you like this episode, please subscribe to Hell and High Water and share us and rate us and review us on whatever app you happen to use to bask in the splendor of the podcast universe. I am your host and the executive editor of The Recount, John Heilman. Grace Weinstein is a co-creator of Hell and High Water. Matthew Kaplowitz is our video editor. Megan Bernie is our producer and engineer. Fonda Mwangi is our researcher and assistant producer and the truth, the light, the one, the only Marshall Isaac is our executive producer. <laughs>